Welcome to David and David on Real Estate. Join us as we explore the ins and outs of the real estate market. Good morning and welcome to the David and David on Real Estate podcast. We are on episode 77 today. Good morning, David. Good morning, David. Nice to see you this morning. You too. You too. Pleasure as always. Uh, and today we're jumping back into topic of uh, power of sale, a uh, couple loose ends to tie up, and uh, we're going to be diving a little bit deeper today, talking about it from a listing perspective, um, all the different logistical things that have to happen and, and coordinating that has to happen uh, when you're uh, dealing with the lender and when you're actually representing the lender in the power of sale, because it, it's a very different process and, and there's a lot to it. Um, and it, uh, as you said, David, uh, before we pressed record, it really depends on the sophistication of the lender, whether they've done this before and whether they have a system in place of what that actually looks like. But I, I wanted to talk through this process because I think it's really important for realtors uh, when this sort of opportunity presents itself for them to really understand the different moving parts and what their role is in the process as well. Yeah, so so let's you know break it down a little bit because I think it was two episodes ago that we discussed the uh, power of sale. So it, so what it is is there's a mortgage that's been granted a lender, whether it's an institutional lender, it's a bank, trust company, whatever the lender, or it might be a private mortgage lender. Somebody has lent somebody to a, a money to a homeowner secured by a mortgage. Mortgage goes into default for whatever reason. They lost their job. They can't make the payment. The interest maybe is a variable rate mortgage. Maybe the, you know, the the, the interest just uh, became prohibitive. It's a cash flow situation. There's a whole bunch of reasons, but these are real reasons in the economy right now. More so now than the economy that existed six months ago or a year ago. So there are these pressure factors in it. But whatever, the mortgage has gone into default, and what's the lender going to do, you know, because you look what a mortgage is, the mortgage is, is really a promissory note. It's, you know, the lender agrees to lend a certain amount of money. The, the borrower signs a document, which is a mortgage says, I promise to pay you back with interest on the following terms and conditions. And then as security for that promise, they register a mortgage on title to the property. And the reason you register is because right in the terms of the mortgage, it says, if there's a default, if I can't pay you back, then, or another default, maybe I didn't insure the property, or maybe I did, you know, committed waste to the property is another default. If, the, if there's a default, then, you know, one of the remedies that the lender has is to sell the property to get their money back. So the lender has different options. The lender can just sue the borrower and any guarantors that there might be and say, okay, you're in default money, the mortgage is now due, you got to pay me. And if you don't pay me, then I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to sue you and, and I'm going to get a judgment to try and collect against assets, but they've already got an asset. They've got security on the mortgage. So one of the ways they could do it, they could just sell the property and they, if they sell it, they can recover all their debt, their principal, the outstanding interest penalties, their legal fees for going through the process. Uh, they're going to pay commissions out of it. They'll pay anything like outstanding property taxes, utility bills. And then whatever's left, they have to account back to the borrower if there's any equity left or to any other encumbrancer that's behind them. They have to account back. 
Now the process might eat away all any equity and there might not be anything for anybody behind them. So that's basically the process. Okay. So if you're a sophisticated lender, you're a, you know, a, a bank lending money, you know, you have a system in place, you know what to do. It's, uh, it's, before. it's not your first uh, rodeo, right? So right. you've got a whole department set up for these things. Right. Um, and they've, and they've got a, you know, a law firm or more than one firm that's available to them all the time that does that type of work for them. And that it's more systematic in terms of how they're going to go about it. If you're a private lender, you know, you can, most lenders don't want to be selling a property. Because most of them, you know, want the mortgage to stay in good standing, come up for renewal, get renewal fees, eventually get paid out, use the money, advance it somewhere else in the next mortgage. But they got to get the money back. So they got to go through a process. So a private lender is going to go through a process. They, they're going to need to sell the property. So after they issue, you know, they need a lawyer first because the lawyer's got to issue the notice of sale, which is notice to anybody that has an interest in the property that there's a default. And, and if, any, if everybody's sort of given an opportunity for 35 days after receiving this notice to redeem, put it in good standing, failing which the lender is then free to go ahead and sell the property. So now they need an agent involved. They got to market the property, right? Which is where you sort of wanted to pick up on, on this conversation because like, what's the role of the agent in, in getting involved on these things and how do you go about listing and things like that, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, David, there's, there's a lot of liability involved here, right? You're dealing with, you know, um, either a big institution that has a lot of money that has, you know, a, a lot of resources. Uh, you're also dealing with um, the, the defaulting party and, you know, that party, I mean, at the end of the day is, there, you know, there's, they're, they're going to lose some money here. You know, they're going to, there's going to be lots of fees. There's going to be lots of lawyer fees. You know, they're, you know, they're not going to come out of this uh, hole, right? There's going to be some, some losses here that they incur because of going through this process. So um, you as the professional representing the lender and uh, acting on behalf of the lender and helping the lender um, further their initiative, um, you have to make sure that you, you know, take certain steps and follow certain uh, procedures to ensure that the best and highest possible price is obtained for the property and that you represent all parties to make sure that you further everybody's agenda to the best of your ability. And that, that's, you know, sometimes not easy, not straightforward to do in some of these very complex situations. So I think it's really important that, you know, we dive into this situation and really explain from a logistical point of view, you know, what steps uh, a professional, uh, a real estate professional should be taking to make sure that that happens in the, in the best possible scenario for all parties. Yeah. And, and the worst thing that an agent might do is say, Oh, you know what? I've got someone that I know will buy this property because you know, they can get it on, uh, get a bargain on it. And I know someone looking for a property and we can just sell it to them and, you know, and get it done really quickly or something like that's the worst thing you can do. If, if, if it's a power of sale, because there is this obligation to account for everybody that's behind the lender in the process, you know, starting with the borrower and, and the borrower's spouse 
and any other potential claimant behind that, anybody you'd be giving notice to in the process is a potential, is someone you have to account for, for what happened to the proceeds. So if there's a second mortgage, a third mortgage on the property or, or a construction lien claimant that may have registered against the property or anybody else, uh, even uh, CRA you know, might have an interest because there might be outstanding uh, taxes or something like that. So there's, and, and the city, because there might be outstanding uh, property taxes or utilities outstanding. So there's other interested parties. But when the property gets sold by whoever's selling their power of sale, they, they're cutting out the interest. And it might be eliminating completely because there might be no money for any of them. So, and for those that there might be some money, it's the question is how much money? So there is this duty to account. So yes, they have the right to sell the property, but everybody else that's involved in the process behind them has the right to challenge them to say, hey, you know, what process did you follow? To, so, so you didn't cut us out completely or that you, you maximized at least what's available to us that are, that are behind the, the lender that's selling the property. So that's a, a really important thing. So that's why the process is so important. And, and that's why an agent can't say, oh, you know, I got, I got a guy who will buy this property in two seconds because they're looking for a bargain. And they'll no, because now you've undersold the property you didn't go through a proper process. Okay. So what the agent should be saying is, okay, we need two or three appraisals done because we've got to have this. To, you know, to really, it's not just my opinion as an agent, what I think the property is worth based on me, you know, looking and doing some valuations. It, you know, that, that's one, you know, that's one, but let's get a couple others, you know, from different perspectives. Because after you got two or three, you know, then you got an idea of, of what you could really sell it for, but you've got that as evidence in your back pocket for down the road in case you do get challenged. Now, right. David, is that standard practice on every single power of sale? Like, is it standard? And and the other question I have is, would the lender do those appraisals even before the real estate agent is involved? Or is the real estate agent involved in, in that process? Well, again, it depends on who your lender is. If it's if it's an institutional lender, they will have their own appraisers in-house that are doing that process. And, and they might even be taking, like, you know, want an independent appraiser that's not an in-house person doing that because what they're trying to do is protect themselves from any challenge after they sell the property saying hey you didn't sell it you didn't ex you didn't expose the property properly or you you sold it to the first guy that came along and you didn't go through a proper process and i think you could have had more therefore you know all those people that are behind they have the right to sue the lender okay to challenge them and and say you know after they get the accounting say no you didn't do your job properly you didn't you didn't expose the property properly. You didn't, did you, you know, what was your backup? Why did you list it for a million dollars? Let's see the appraisals. Do you have three appraisals that said it should sell for a million? Because, because our evidence might, the other evidence might be, oh, we, we could have evidence that we're going to show a judge that it was worth a million one at the time. And why did you list it for a million? So if a lenders want to say, well, here's what's in my file. We got these three appraisals. One was in-house, one was from a, an agent, one was from an appraisal company. And they all agreed that it should sell somewhere between, you know, 950 and, and a million fifties. So we thought a million was a good place to list. You, you have to justify it. You have to have the evidence in your file to justify it. And if you do that and then you expose it on the market in a multi-list, you know, you, it should go on an MLS every single time. You want to expose it just for that reason. 
And if it turns out you only got 900,000 after you exposed it and was on the market for a while, like then it's too bad for everybody behind it. Cause that's what the market dictated at the time. You got one offer. It was on the market for a long time and you took the offer, but you can satisfy a judge that you did, you did your job. Yeah. Just to segue a, a second, I, I have a story to share here. Um, one of my agents was involved in a big estate sale and there's six um, beneficiaries uh, of the estate, um, all fighting and all, you know, cannot, you know, there's this property, it, it's an estate sale. And, you know, there's, uh, I think probate was completed and the property was put into the six names. Um, and now they're fighting about, you know, who should list it, what price they should list it at. And I got this document on my, on my desk and it was an exclusive listing agreement for $1. And I, I picked up the phone, I called the agent and I said, listen, this is not happening. Like we can't list on an exclusive listing agreement for $1 because, you know, that presents so many different issues and challenges about, you know, proper exposure and what the proper price should be. If you want to listen for $1 in the MLS and kind of let the market dictate value, completely a different story. And I would be supportive of that, but to list for $1 in the exclusive side, when there is, you know, six siblings fighting and not agreeing on anything, uh, to me it was just absolute insanity, and 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 you know I didn't allow the uh, the listing to move forward, uh, but that that goes straight to your point that you know exposing the property adequately and making sure that you know the market has time to see the property to you know that it gets marketed properly is so important i, I can't stress that enough in in all these situations right because as an agent i mean you have fiduciary duty to you know whoever you're representing whoever your client is right, right. and by introducing your own client that's putting your own self-interest and your client's self-interest before your your original client's self-interest. Right. And, and that's a very dangerous situation. So I don't think anybody should be double-ending power of sales. Or if you do double-end, I mean, we can talk about this a little bit at the end. Um, I would do it in a very specific way and probably involve another agent from the office and, you know, make sure that there's, you know, a, a wall there and, and there's, you know, um, you're not giving them any information and then you have to be very, very careful. Right. And, you know, I had a conversation with, with an agent the other day about, you know, um, how you conduct yourself in the market. And I said to him, I said, look, like, you know, you're a young guy, you, you have a whole career in front of you, you know, you can't be doing certain things. And then just thinking about the next deal, you got to think about, you know, 20 years from now, what your reputation is going to be in the market. Right. So the same thing here, like, you know, when you're representing uh, an institution or a bank and, and you're the listing agent on a power of sale, you know, you, you can't put your client, your own needs first. You got to make sure you represent that that person to the best of your abilities. Um, and if you do have a client that's looking for something similar, of course, you can show it to them, but you have to be very careful about how you proceed forward. I think your advice is bang on, David. And I would tell the advice I would give to someone on, on that. If they want to sell to someone, I've got a guy that can buy this right away. I would only go ahead with that in, in the following scenario. Okay. It's I'm, okay. We're going to sell this private. I've got someone who's available right now. I know the market, they, they would buy it. 
and and but only on the basis i would say go ahead only on the basis that you you get everybody to sign off on it you full disclosure you go to the borrower and say hey i've got a guy who's going to buy this property for a million dollars we think it'll sell for about a million whether you sell it or the bank sells or the lender sells it it's around a million okay might be 975 might be but it's around we got a guy who's prepared to pay that right now for a quick closing They've got financing, no conditions. We've got somebody, but you want the lender's going to sign off and the lender's not going to sign off unless you get the borrower to sign off. So the borrower says, yeah, I agree. And the second mortgage lender says, I agree in writing. And anybody else that's involved in the problem, you got to get them to sign off first. Okay. Because they're all saying, they're all saying, we agree that you're waiving the normal process to get this done because maybe there's an advantage and maybe there's something in it for all of them. If they're going to agree in writing, fine. Okay. Then you can go ahead. But other to do that, you're just inviting a lawsuit by everybody that's behind you. Okay. You know, I went through this on a, on a property, you know, I could tell you a story on a, um, it, it was a vacant land, you know, that was going to be developed into residential condo unit or really townhome units. Like there was, you know, for, there was a, I think six lots basically that could have been built and would have been townhomes. And, and the, the, you know, the developer, you know, got in trouble, the market changed. They found some environmental issues under the soil that increased the cost. And it was in a process and a clean, they had to go through a whole process and approval process. And it was delayed, delayed, delayed. Eventually there was three mortgages on the property, you know, first, second, third. <laughs> we're uh we're laughing because uh it took us 77 episodes to press pause on on these podcasts and uh completely my fault i had to run to the bathroom and i uh, you know i just funny but uh that's amazing like we always record these right through we never have a pause we we, we just never have a take we don't have to edit ever uh we just whatever it is it is and we just go so um Anyway, we, I can't believe we went. I broke the cycle. You broke the cycle. <laughs> wow. Well, um, now everybody knows, and uh, you know that's uh, something we're talking about. Uh, another tangent, right? But uh, kind of incredible because when we started these, I, I never imagined that we would go seventy-seven episodes without needing to, you know, press pause and right. edit and 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 you know put the thoughts together. But it's been uh, it's been so. Uh, easy right and I think a lot of that David of course is an uh, you know uh, test to how much we love this industry and um, you know the, the level of experience that you, especially you bring to to this conversation so uh, it's been a lot of fun and now everybody knows that uh, you know we 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 press record and we record all the way through without any edits and that was our first pause. With, with so thank you for bearing with us. <laughs> yeah, even, even with guests, we've never had to never had to pause. We just go right through. And, and I think most of our sessions, I think, David, you and I look at, you know, uh, we do some prep before and we think, okay, this is going to take us 15, 20 minutes to talk about. And before you know it, it's an hour every single time. And it just, the time flies with guests, without guests, because there's stuff comes up. Once you start talking about something, it's, oh yeah, that reminds me of this thing or this situation happened, or you got this question from an agent and there's always something that that comes up that feeds the conversation everything and the time flies in these sessions yeah and i mean you know you guys close hundreds of transactions every month we close hundreds of deals every month so we're out there and we have a pulse of what's really happening and 
you know, I'm very close with my agents and, and, you know, we do a lot of listening and we, we do a lot of support and, um, you know, you come across all types of different situations. So even if you lean on, you know, 1% of what happens in a week and, and talk about it, you know, there's, there's a lot of content. Yeah, no, there always is. And it's, it's always, you know, one of those things where I've always, you know, thought the best thing for a real estate agent is, you know, to, to get in the office as much as they can, uh, because you just because you're there, you hear pe other people's stories, you hear what's going on on their transactions, they hear what you get to hear, right? People are coming to you all day long with a situation, they got a situation, they're not sure, do I do A, do I do B, do I do C, is there another option, right? So you're, you get involved. But most agents, if they're just, if they're not part of a team or anything, all they're exposed to is their own deals, right? And that's another advantage of getting in. And I think same thing for lawyers, you know, I encourage our associate lawyers, even though people like to work from home and remotely, and we spread out just because we have three offices. So we got people spread out sometimes, but it's still good to be in the office because you're in the office, you get to hear about somebody else's file, whether it's another lawyer or just clerk saying, Hey, you know, I got a problem on a file and they're discussing it. And then you just get exposed to more when you're in those type of environments and you just learn more. Yeah. Right. Sure. And you bank it, you, you, you put it in the back of your head and at some point it comes in, you need it at some point in time. Yeah. Yeah. I have a really good friend of mine that uh, reads a lot of sales books, you know, and I always said to him, I said, uh, uh, and he was on the show, Sean shake. And I, and I always say to him, Sean, like sometimes, you know, I, I don't quite understand that concept and I'm like, I need to reread it. And he always says to me, no, you don't. He's like, one day when your brain and your subconscious needs to rely and lean on that, it just will just trust. Right. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. Cause I'm the type of person where I'd like to read something like three times until like I can really understand and, 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 and know exactly what it is. And Sean encouraged me to say, no, you know what? Get us through as many books as possible and your subconscious will lean on, on, on that instance or on that uh, when it needs to, which was, you know, which uh, was a, a different way of thinking, right? So right. something you need to push yourself out of your own comfort zone and, and, and you know, realize, and realize that, you know, your, your, your mind works in a certain way and it's quite extraordinary how it works. Yep. Uh, it's true. And, and you just never know where that information is going to come in handy at some point in time and it's like, oh yeah you know I, there was a situation you try and figure out what it was and eventually it'll it'll come back to you you may not remember all the facts but you know you, look, you could always go back to that book at that point in time and say and use it as a reference because because it, it triggers it right yeah yeah anyways let's go back to the story you okay. were sharing before i yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll just tell the story because i think it just gives you an example of how how, how you got to be not fearful of the situation, but you got to take so many factors into consideration when you're, when you are selling and depends on which side of the process you're on. So just to recap a little bit, vacant land that was going to be developed into, into townhomes, we got a first mortgage lender. There was a second mortgage lender. There was a third mortgage lender because there was original acquisition costs and there was fine. There was monies put in because there was an environmental cleanup that had to be done and there's development money. And then there was someone was putting up some pre-construction money and eventually it was anyways, the project took way too long. The economy shifted. The building permits weren't available. There's a bunch of factors. They got dragged on, dragged on. Eventually, the, the the owner, you know, ran out of money and couldn't make the mortgage payments because this was 
taken too long. So all, all the mortgages went into default, okay? All three mortgages on the property. Everybody issued notice of sale at some point because every, everybody has the right to sell the property. The issue became like, who was going to sell the property? And no one really wanted to sell the property. The third mortgage lender was sort of re realized right away, there's, I'm likely to get no money out of this right now. If this gets sold by someone, no matter what, how they appraise it, current market and everything, I'm likely to get no money. I'd rather wait and let the first or second do it because maybe they'll screw up in their process and maybe I could at least sue them because maybe they didn't market it properly and they just cut me out. Maybe I'll have an action. To, maybe I can recover from them. Okay. So they didn't want to take control because if they took control and sold it fair market value, they probably get nothing. So why bother? They'd rather let some, let the people ahead of them do it. The first mortgage lender who could sell at any time to get all their money out didn't want to sell it because they were fearful of being sued by the second mortgage lender and the third mortgage lender to account for what they did. Because chances are third mortgage lender probably get nothing. Second mortgage lender might get a third, maybe a half, but they're open to being sued. Okay. And the, and the first mortgage I should explain too, was a group of investors. Okay. It wasn't a sophisticated builder or something. It was a group of investors that put money in and there was about eight of them and, and, and they're all, have their own opinion. It was eight separate opinions on the process. But not only that, if you're going to sell it as the first mortgage lender, you have to put up some money first. Okay. In order to protect themselves, they would have to get proper appraisals done. They'd have to hire an appraiser company to, or one or more to get a couple different opinions. They've got to pay for that. They probably had to make sure that the, um, that it was environmentally sound to, to sell the property. They would have to do an environmental study of some sort to know exactly the situation. Was it cleaned up properly to make sure that they're not in a bad position so that they don't get challenged if they're selling a property that's contaminated or something like that. There was outstanding property taxes on the property. So were they going to pay that first? They got to hire, you know, real estate, they got to market this. So they would have had to, as a group, they would have had to put some more money in. Okay. And they weren't an institution that had money available. And even though they put more money in, they're likely to get it back when they sell it, but they're still putting the money in and they're not the most sophisticated group and they don't all agree because they're not cohesive. So that became a challenge for them to do it. So they said, you know, we'd rather sort of not do it. Let the second mortgage lender sell it and they could sell it. And all the money, you know, the first money that they get on it comes to us as the first, right? But the second mortgage lender wasn't moving, like they weren't doing anything. So it just kept, like nobody wanted to sell it. It just, it was just staying for a long time, you know. And interest keeps accruing, and the market kept changing, and and, and literally, a, you know, a few years went by, you know, in the process because everybody was like, nobody was ready to to go ahead and sell it, you know. And then one answer would be like the the first mortgage or anybody could have appointed a receiver to step in and do that. As soon as you do that everybody gets blown out because the receiver gets paid such high fees to deal with properties like that, that, and they get paid first. And I had, so they now jump in first position ahead of the first mortgage lender and receivers like the bill goes up so fast. So, so that wasn't really a good option either. So it, it's just, but it sort of brought in all the principles of what happens when you sell, because you do have a duty to account to those that are behind you. 
So you have to be really careful in the process, you know, so as an agent, you got to know who your, your lender is. If you're, if you're, you know, and that was sort of your first question. If you're, if you're the agent that's you know, being retained by Bank of Nova Scotia as a first mortgage lender, it's a little different than if you're the agent being retained by a private mortgage lender, you know, who's, who got, got stuck and they're not that sophisticated. David, I love this story because I think it brings into light like everything that we were talking about, about power of sales. And um, there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of logistical things that have to be accounted for. Um, love the fact that, you know, in first position, you had a group of investors, eight of them, who were not very sophisticated and who clearly didn't really understand the process, nor were they willing to put money in. And that was, you know, a big part of, of, of the stagnation, you know, right. the second person didn't want to initiate power of sale proceedings because they knew that, Hey, I'm going to do all this work. The liability of being sued is so much higher. I'm not going to get the majority of my money back anyways, because we're in second position, not in first position. Um, why go through the hassle? Like we're, we're going to, there's going to be a loss here, no matter what happens. Right. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe they were hoping that, uh, you know, the original seller or the property owner brings everything into good standing, which is, you know, a possibility as well. We don't know that side of the story because, uh, you know, we're, we're, they're not our clients, but maybe there was a small possibility that happens as well. So lots of different moving parts, but I think your example does a really good job in illustrating the sophistication of the lender, what that means in the transaction, the fact that you have to have deep pockets because uh, anytime you lend money, you have to be careful to, um, or you have to be willing to basically put more money behind your money to get your original money back. Right. right? And I right. think that's the concept that, you know, a Even lot if of- if you're first and you're likely to get it back because there's enough equity there. So you, you got to put out money to get appraisals done or to pay some outstanding property. You're going to get it back if there's enough money there, but you still have to lay it out. Like there's still a cash flow thing. Yeah. And you still have to know that you still have to account to people behind you. And if they don't think you did a proper job, all of a sudden they're suing you after the sale yeah. because they think you didn't do a proper job. Yeah. Not only are you going to get it back, but you're going to get administrative costs and you're going to get interest costs on top of that money you spend. So, you know, you're, you're making an investment to recoup your money, but, you know, you have to go deeper before, before you get up. Right. And, right. uh, Again, like administration costs, NSF charges, legal, like all of that is covered and reimbursable and you can, you can charge that and you're in first position. So all those costs are going to be recouped. But again, you've got to go deeper before you get your money back. Right. Right. And, and you never know how long it's going to take to, you know, and, and if you talk about like the private mortgage lending business, it's one thing someone gives a private mortgage on a property in, in Mississauga or in Toronto or, or something like that, but you're giving a private mortgage on a, on a more rural property or a small town property in Ontario. And, you know, even though it's got, you know, there's value there and, you know, you're not giving 90% of value, it might be 60% of value. Or it looks like a great deal, but if that mortgage goes into default and you have to sell the property or power of sale and you're in some small town in Ontario, there might not be anybody to buy that property for a long period of time. Okay, no matter what condition it's in, it might be in great condition. Maybe it needs a lot of work. It might be in lousy condition. Maybe you got to put in a whole bunch of money 
to fix up the property, to make it attractive for somebody that lives in that small town of, of 5,000 people for them to buy that house because there's some newer properties there and it's just not attractive. And all of a sudden, even though you had a, a mortgage that was in first position and it looked like there was lots of equity and you only, you know, 60% of value, all of a sudden you, you got nobody to buy it and you can't get your, your money back. So you really got to be careful. So it's not, and I want this, I always feel like I'm saying stuff like, um, where people that, you know, don't do anything, don't do every transaction because there can be problems, you know, so don't, don't shoot the messenger. But it's, it's just a question. It doesn't mean those are bad things, but you have to think about all these things in advance and understand the market that you're going to be, that you're going to be in, right? Because if you do have to sell a property, not always so easy, not all properties can sell it. And sometimes you do have to put more money in just like a homeowner would, right? To, to declutter, to stage, to get the curb appeal, no different. If you're selling under power of sale, a lot of times as the lender, you're going to want to put some money in to fix it up, to be able to sell, to, to make sure you get your money back. And you can do that. But again, you got to keep your invoices. You got to get more, you know, if you're going to have a contractor, you want to get more than one bidding on it. You got to be careful because you can be challenged in the process all the way through to account. So right. you got to do it. But sometimes you got to consider, do, do I have deep enough pockets if I have to, to pay outstanding property taxes, to fix up, you know, the, the, the curb appeal issues before selling, right? Because you don't want to, you want to be in the business of, you know, of lending money, selling a property. You don't want to be in the litigation business. No, we always say that a litigation business is not a good business to be in, right? It takes a lot Unless of time, a lot of money. And and that's gonna erode um, and and cause a lot of gray hairs on, on on your on your and then you're in front of a judge who you never know how they rule like they might be having a good day they might be having a bad day you just you know it's completely out of your your hands so you definitely don't want to go that route David we don't have a lot of time left but let's just really talk about the logistics because I think the logistics are really important right so yep. um, how close is the real estate professional working with the, the lawyer's office and the lender. On, on this transaction yeah it, it extremely close okay because they got to be involved in the whole process which is different from a normal transaction like a lot of times you're just selling a property for a homeowner a lot of times you don't need me as the lawyer involved in that process until the agreement's signed you know unless a condition or something an issue comes up in the negotiation but a lot you know most of the time it's no the agreement's signed we need a lawyer to act on the closing and, and away you go. Very different when in this process, because you have a lawyer involved issuing the notice of sale, first of all, right? To making sure that, the, so they got all the information correct from the lender, because you have to issue the notice first, right? You have to issue the notice of sale to the proper parties and search title and make sure you're, you're giving, so you're involved right away. But even before that, sometimes there's a, before you even issue notice, so sometimes there's a demand that's made like a letter that's being sent saying, hey, there's a default. And if you don't fix it in the next 10 days, then we're going to issue a notice of sale because usually that's the process. So, so you have to get the lawyer involved. The other thing that a lawyer is going to be consulted with is, is do we need to get possession of the property in order to sell it? Do we want to issue a statement of claim? Are they agreeing to, to show the property? Do we have something in writing? Is it vacant or is there a tenant there? Is the homeowner moving out anyways? You know, we want to show the property. We may want to fix it up. Do we need possessions? We might have to issue a statement of claim before we issue the notice of sale in order to get possession of the property. So you really have to have the lawyer involved, you know, day one 
in this process, which is very different from a regular sale process. And then from that point, it's every step of the way because you know you, we'll, we want to make sure the agreement's drafted properly that's available because basically you're, the seller is going to say, this is the form of agreement. Anybody wants to buy this property, this is what you're going to sign. Fill in your name, put the closing date, put the price you're prepared to offer. Don't touch anything else, right? right? So they give you all the forms, all the agreements, all the forms to use. Yeah. A lot of times when you look at it, you just, you know, there's a lot of warranties and representations and even titles being adjusted. And there, there's a lot of crossing out that happens, right? And then there's this long schedule A. So, um, you know, you're using the lawyer forms, you're using the lender forms, if it's a very sophisticated lender. The other thing you have to make sure is that you got to give yourself an amount of time to make sure that the lender and the lawyer have a chance to review any offers to respond back. So a lot of the times these lenders and lawyers are working nine to five, Monday to, to Friday, they don't work evenings, they don't work weekends. So as a professional, you just have to- Really? really there's, there's lawyers that only work nine to five? I, I've never experienced that. <laughs> well, your office is the exception, right? But like, I mean, you're dealing with gowlings. They're not going to be responding to you at 7 p.m. at night on a Friday evening, right? Right. right. You know, your office is is excellent in, in terms of response. And but that's that's the exception. That's not the norm. Right. Right. So, right. Um, you, you just really have to be, be cognizant of all those things. Right. There, there, there's all these these different factors. And, uh, you know, the and you know, timing is always an important factor, too. But that's why these things don't generally happen on a rush. It's OK. Today's day 35. The notice period is over. Let's, you know, we got an offer and boom, let's, let's go. No, it's, that's when you start the process. We got to expose the property for a period of time. We might have offers coming right away and they might say, you know what, we don't want to accept anything yet because we have other parties that are showing interest that want to come and see it. And if we, if we short circuit the process, it opens us up to challenge. So sometimes they got to slow it down a little bit to make sure that it's exposed properly and they, and they take the offers in and they, and they deal with the various offers and stuff. And the other thing we talked about a little bit last time we did it, it's something there's more than one party trying to sell the property. Okay. The borrower may have decided also I'm prepared to sell the property and I'm going to do it. And now you got a lender trying to sell the property and it's like, who's going to sell first. And, you know, maybe there's a, a second mortgage lender you know, that wants to do it too. So you have, so they all got to talk to each other a little bit, yeah, right? And, and they might agree for a period of time. You know, sometimes a lender will say, okay, if you're really selling the property, we're going to give you, even though our, our notice period is up, we're going to give you a couple of weeks to try and sell the property. If you can do it, great. Show us a firm agreement. In the next couple of weeks, we'll hold off. Yep. Right. I mean, but they're not, going to hold off in terms of the power of sale process, but all their fees and interest and penalties. Well, oh, that's are, all going to get paid. Accruing, right? That's, oh, yeah. You know, that's yeah. not stopping. Uh, it's just right. they're stopping the actual power of sale proceedings, right? right. So, and again, right. if you're a realtor representing that sale, the actual homeowner, uh, closing date is so important, right? Because, you know, you, you need to get that process dealt with quickly uh, right. to, to make sure the pay, the bank gets paid as, as quick as possible. Yeah. Now, you are right. And sometimes if, and if you're an agent, sorry, if you're an agent acting for the owner trying to sell the property, you know, you only want to go so far until you know that the lender has agreed to allow this. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lot of time and effort trying to sell this property and they might, it might never happen. You don't get a commission. You don't get anything if your transaction doesn't close, if the lender ends up selling the property. Right. So from an agent's point of view, you want 
you know, to, you want to ascertain that the lender, that you got some cooperation from the lender or what their process is or how far into the process they are before you starting, start committing to getting in there, try to sell the property and spending money on staging and, and marketing and things like that, when they can pull the rug out from under you. And if they do, you're, you're, you're standing there you know, with nothing. Right. Because David, correct me if I'm wrong, but the homeowner cannot sell the property if there's outstanding money, unless he has the money, uh, the shortfall amount and cash to pay all the other people, unless they yes. agree. And I mean, they would probably never agree to, to this process. Right. Well, uh, sometimes they do. If there's a shortfall, you know, you, you got to do that math in advance and you got to go back to whoever might be on the short end of the stick and say, Hey, look, we're going to sell the property. Here's the math. Okay. Here's, here's the value of the property. Here's what the first mortgage gets. Here's what the you know property taxes are that are ahead of you. Here's what CRA is owed. Here's what the commissions are to, to pay it and the legal fees to pay it. At the end of the day, there's only this amount left. So, you know, will you accept that amount that, to go to you and agree to this process? Cause that's all you're going to get. And that, and that party will either say, yes, I'll accept that in full payment of what I'm owed, or I'll accept that without prejudice to my rights to, you know, like the sale will go through, but I, but I might, they might retain the right to still go after the, the owner for the deficiency because they can still get a judgment for the balance that they're owed. And that might sit around for five, six, seven years. At some point they might be able to collect on it because maybe there's other assets or, but they don't necessarily have to give up on that, but they could say, we'll accept X dollars and allow your transaction to close, but without prejudice to our ability to, you know, to like, we're not forgiving the balance of the debt we might go after, or we want the owner to consent to a default judgment for the balance or something like that. But you do have those conversations. So you got to do the math, but if the math shows there's no, you're not going to get paid in full. A lot of times those, you know, those people in those subsequent positions will agree to it. Interesting, very interesting. But I guess in in their defense, um, or or um, you know, the positive thing if you're a second lender is that if you're not going through a power of sale proceeding with with the bank, there's more money there, right? Because more less of it is eaten up by the first position who's actually doing the power of sale, right? Um, you know, so there's more money in it for you. Uh, the right. the question is, can you negotiate a way with all parties? Uh, to to really move forward, right? Because if the power of sale happens, it's forced upon everybody. Like this is it, you know, everything's forced, and they right. they kind of have to live with what happens, right? In this situation, there's a little bit more negotiation that happens, so it might be the uh, the best alternative. But you know, boy, does the realtor have a tough job in front of him to you know negotiate with all these parties to come up with a resolution. Yeah, even CRA, we've done many deals, you know, where CRA is owed an amount of money and they registered on title, you know, that they're interested. So they're going to get paid. But but we've had situations where CRA agrees to take, you know, less than 100% of the money owed to them to allow the transaction to close and whatever they're going to, what's available to them, they'll accept without prejudice to their rights to, you know, to still go after, you know, that debt doesn't get wiped out necessarily. Sometimes, you know, we've seen that they, they will wipe out small amounts or something because they just want to close it. But a lot of times it's no, but we'll allow the sale to go. We'll accept whatever's left for us from the sale, but we still have our, our other abilities to go after the homeowner down the road 
at some point in time, if they acquire other assets, we can still collect on it. So we've, we've seen that even from, from them, you know, because like, yeah. sometimes it makes sense to, for everybody to sell the property and, you know, and get everybody paid down as much as possible. Sometimes you get wiped out. Sometimes you get a lot less than hundred percent. And sometimes you can accept a certain amount, but you still can live another day and you might have a chance to collect down the road. These are uh, very serious matters and uh, a lot of moving parts. So if you are involved in this process, uh, depending on who you represent, uh, just uh, be very careful and make sure that, you know, you work very closely with the lender and the lawyer to make sure that all parties are represented. And David, I, I love what you said is that there's no rush here to really um, you know, put yourself in a difficult situation, take your time, speak to everybody, understand uh, all the different moving parts and, and don't rush to accept an offer uh, that comes in because there might be something a little bit more lucrative around the corner. And at the end of the day, you really have to substantiate that that was in everybody's best interest. Right. Don't expose yourself to a lawsuit by those that get cut out in the process because you can't justify the process that you help the, the, the client or the lender go through. So you just have to be, you have to be aware of these things, be diligent, be careful. And it goes back to some of the basic stuff we talk about all the time, David, as an agent, know your client, you got to understand their whole situation, right? Whether it's the owner trying to sell because they're in distress, like who are, who are they owe money to, or if they're helping, they're actually acting for the lender selling it under power of sale. You still got to understand their situation and who your lenders are and, and their sophistication level and things like that. So there's factors to consider, but you know, these deals get done all the time. None of this again, should be discouraging anybody from doing any of these things. Like these transactions happen. You can do them. You can earn commission on them. These things happen. You could be doing a great service to your client, whether you're acting for the private lender selling it or whether you're acting for the owner trying to avoid a power of sale. Um, but um, you just have to do it properly. Yeah. Awesome, David. Well, listen, this is another great episode. Uh, thank you everybody for tuning in. But we're, you know, the unfortunate part of, of the matter is that we are going to see more and more power of sales moving forward because of a current uh, uh, economic and, and market condition and interest rate rising. So, you know, David Corman and I, we just want to see everybody uh, feeling more comfortable, confident, and to educate you guys so you can, you guys can navigate these situations uh, more flawlessly and, and, and really understand all the moving parts. So thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.